In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiza. Eusebius Makaiza. So the episode you're about to listen to is an experiment. The previous episode, episode 145, was entitled Ramaphosa Told You Why You Shouldn't Vote ANC. And in that last episode, I essentially voiced an analysis piece I'd written for timeslive.co.za in which I had a look at the ANC's birthday celebration that took place recently in Mangahung in the Free State. And at that birthday bash, the whole event culminated in President Ramaphosa wearing his hat as the ANC's leader reading out a statement referred to as the January the 8th statement traditionally. And that is a statement in which the party basically tells the country what it thinks as a political party should be the policies top of mind for government in the coming year ahead. Now, I listened to that and I read the text and I thought to myself, what the hell is going on here? The first half of this statement is an argument for why no one should vote for the ANC. And yet everyone is either reacting with silence or reporting on the January the 8th statement as if they didn't just deliver an argument for why you shouldn't vote for them. And it was just a normal birthday celebration. And I thought, what the, what the if? And that's why I wrote the analysis piece, and that's why the previous episode was a summary of the essence of that analysis piece. But then one of my friends and interlocutors, Coffee, wrote me and said, I listened to your latest podcast, I loved it to bits, however, or and rather than however, and it is important that we also ask, why is it that so many people still vote for them, given that you were just suggesting they had made a convincing argument by their own analysis for why no one should vote for them. And Coffee and I had a back and forth via WhatsApp, as we often do. And then I thought, aha, here's a great idea for something innovative for the podcast. I have so many cool friends, some of them you know because they are regulars on radio, TV, online on different social media platforms or on podcast platforms and I've dragged them sometimes screaming into public spaces. Some of them shy, some have become used to the idea and enjoy the idea of public engagement. And so coffee is not a new voice to many of you who follow my work closely. But this particular conversation was a private one and I said to him, do you mind if I simply ask Abel, the producer, to put you and I in conversation with each other on the podcast and we basically transfer our WhatsApp conversation into a little bit of a dialectic about the ANC voter. And it was the most beautiful conversation over a couple of days. We each listened to the other, went away, thought about the other's viewpoint, thought some more, and then came back to WhatsApp and responded and was a back and forth for about three or four rounds and in the process we discussed the topic of whether or not ANC voters vote against their own interest and whether they consent irrationally so to being dominated by the ANC so that is the theme of this podcast You'll hear a lot of natural sound because when we each recorded it, obviously we were not in a clean studio. We were just going about our business and recording messages for each other's mates. But I kind of like that as well. To be honest, the idea of clinically recorded sound is so pre-COVID-19, so pre-lockdown. And so I hope you will enjoy 
what we have put together for you. And yes, it's one of the more difficult podcasts. At some points, we are easy to listen to. At other points, I think we go down some rabbit holes deliberately because, you know what, it's easy to say things that can make us go viral and trend. But there is complexity in dealing with politics, ourselves as individuals, voters psychologically. And we allowed ourselves to be to be nerdish when we needed to be nerdish, philosophical when we wanted to be philosophical, and plain speaking and practical when we needed to be practical. I was secure in the knowledge as the host of this podcast that a critical number of you as regular followers of the podcast do enjoy having the option of sometimes flipping between laughter and memes and easy conversation and digging deep to try and understand the state of the nation, including ourselves as voters. So it might be one of those podcasts you have to listen to very carefully or a second or a third time. Do so and share it widely and let me know what you thought of me in conversation with coffee, who you found more convincing, neither of us, both of us, and where you locate yourself. Enjoy. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Hi, Eusebius. Um, thanks very much for your piece on the critique of the January 8th of um, a president of the African National Congress, Cyril Maposa. I like your critique as usual. I think there's a lot of powerful uh, thoughts there. Um, but one thing I wanted to say, uh, I've been saying this for many years now, is that uh, I think I may have mentioned that to you. What's, what's really needed now is to really shake and shake the chokehold that you talked about, the sort of uh, chokehold Stockholm syndrome that really is literally killing the country where your oppressor, literally, I could use this term, you know, literally comes out defiantly exposes to you the kind of crime almost you know they're committed against you um the destruction of your livelihood your presence and then by extension your future and dare to ask you to vote for them again oh by the way not even dare to ask you knows that you're gonna vote for them again because you're under some kind of spell that binds you to them no matter what they do and so there i think the write-up i'm glad that you mentioned the, the point about um the sort of softball reaction that the media some of your colleagues in the media and so forth are handing over to the african national congress especially to president Cyril ramaphosa is the kind of things that we've seen that's just not right that's where the stockholm syndrome again plays um but what i would want to see which i haven't seen seriously i may have missed it a consistent critique or at least you know segmentation and deeper dive analysis on the psychology of the beneficiary of this uh, stockholm syndromes starting first with the voters and the people are making it easier for the african national congress 
to still treat them as if they're just non-entities or cattles or concentration camps holding um, you know devices and I think that I haven't seen it my what do they look like and that critique should be done without apologies and not having people having the guilt to feel patronizing against poor people or rural people or you know black people and so forth a frank conversation and critique on why are they what is the psychology that informs this voting we probably know it after we we do that or after that's done to attack it resolutely with a logic that tells them that look you guys are screwing up literally and it must be like talking to somebody who is driving to an abyss and literally saying yes i'm driving there this is where i'm going and I want to die, you know? Now, the moral question here is, do people who attempt to tell this person not to drive into the abyss, righteous, um, pretentious, self-righteous as well, or thinking that they know best than this person is driving into the abyss? And I think this is where we should be. And there hasn't been a serious conversation about the psychology of these people and what to do with it. So much so that to go back to um, a COVID-19, um, if you want, symbol, to say that, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, you're gonna have COVID, why aren't you not taking the, <laughs> the vaccine, <laughs> right? You wanna kill yourself. Well, maybe they wanna kill themselves. And that need to be not just interrogated, but they need to be seriously, you know, taken on to examine their thought patterns and not just what informs them to taking that psychological position of consistent pain and the choice, the, the misplaced choices they're making. So much so that when we look back, you know, 30 years ago, at least you and others, a few others who managed to do that critique and that analysis have helped to change the mental model of that psychology to focus on what's good for them rather than thinking about what's good for the African National Congress or there's a completely mental problem, complete. I mean, it's a tough thing for me to say because people will accuse some of us and you and everybody else of saying, well, you think you know better you know and why are you telling us to do what we can do ourselves or why are you giving us the advice we don't need so this that's where the debate is i mean i have to tell you um i've given up on the african national congress i've become so numb it's just literally shocking to me to myself and when i look back you know 27 years ago when i left washington dc to choose south africa as a place where i wanted to live you know, at times I ask myself, did you really make that choice is thinking that for once, you know, a group of people down south will understand, given the history of this continent of misleadership, corruption, I mean, anything that you can think about what I call the six horsemen that includes, you know, poverty, inequality, unemployment, crime, corruption, 
and in the basket of intolerable things like xenophobia and other things would do better than the rest of Africa. And boy, oh boy, it's just unbelievable to see that even themselves, the African National Congress themselves on the June 8th, you know, um, reports there, as you nicely and, and cogently put in your piece, has done an incredibly powerful diagnostics that's so debilitating that as you said again, why in the world anybody would want to vote for such a person or such a group or such an institution or such an organization who is just hoisting this kind of misery on the people they are supposedly running or at least governing. So my short thought to close here is that I think there needs to be a serious focus on the type of people at least the psychology of the people who are entertaining consistently letting the NC off the hook, justifying by Miss Crook or whatever logic it is to get the African National Congress to stand where it is today. And there is no doubt the way the country is going that, I mean, we can't say it more We've been saying it over and over. It's like a ship and heading to an abyss, and it's going to happen, sadly so. Um, what is important and hopeful is that usually the when a boat like that sinks, a ship like that sinks, there are few people come out of it, and that's the only hope I can see. But uh, for now, I think the country not only is in deep trouble, it's going to be in much more deeper trouble. Um, and I hope that something will happen by crucial, by just sheer surprise miracle. That's all I can say. But thanks for sharing the piece. Sorry I was too long, and, and I thought I needed to share that with you. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year again. All the best for this year. Cheers, bye. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiza. Eusebius Makaiza. Hey, Coffee. Thank you so much for your response and also for agreeing that I can share your excellence with our listeners who love listening to you. And you and I should really do more recordings this year if time allows mutually. But thank you for engaging my argument that a proper interpretation of the January the 8th statement is ironically that the ANC's highest decision-making structure, its NEC, National Executive Committee, had put together an argument for why one should not vote ANC. And of course, the dramatic irony that I don't think was sufficiently capitalized on by analysts and reporters alike is that you have President Sul Ramaphosa disingenuously reading out this statement that puts the government on trial, and he reads it, as president of the ANC, including reading out sentences, which I didn't write in the piece that you refer to, um, because I just there was just too much to critique. But even him saying those sentences that start off with the words, um, the ANC calls on government, I was saying to my partner, without any hint of irony, you've got the leader of the executive who is being put on trial by his party reading on behalf of his party this rebuke of the government of which he is a leader. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. If we had the equivalent of American late-night shows, 
it would be incredible material to play with to really make fun of the hubris of the ANC. But what I wanted to do was to just respond to your key insights. I'm just walking away because my puppy in the background is busy chewing on something that might annoy some of the listeners. Um, but I hope the audio is still clear. Uh, I wanted to reflect on what you had said. And firstly, I want to honor the crux of what you had said. You're right. There is a psychological aspect of the support base of the ANC that needs, I think, concrete, sustained engagement. We, we do sometimes lift it to the surface to answer your question, have you missed anything? But it's always done just parenthetically in along the way of speaking about policy or personalities or some other aspects of the body politic. We never really drill down into the psychopolitical dimensions. And as I refer to it in my article, the psychopolitical chokehold that the ANC has over many voters. And I think there are two reasons we don't often talk in any detailed way about the psychology of voting in general and the psychology of the ANC voter. The first is that it's speculative. I There's a book out here by my by my library as I'm speaking to you, and there's a book that I haven't read because I was skeptical about the nature of the project, even though the book has got good critical review, and it's a psychologist who basically said that South Africa needs to be put on the couch as a nation. Now, my inner philosophy student immediately goes, okay, not so fast. You can't analogize from the business of psychoanalyzing an individual to psychoanalyzing a country. A country is not a person. It is constituted by communities and communities have got lots of individuals. What does it mean to talk about the nation? You know, that move from the individual on my couch to the nation on the couch just seems incoherent. Um, and, and so I, I was kind of like skeptical about it. And so to answer your question, what does that got to do with politics? Similarly, you know, imagining you know what goes on in the head and in the heart of voters who are complex beings is a difficult project to undertake. Even I think if you have a professor title behind your name in a psychology department somewhere. So there's a there's a inherent methodological problem with trying to understand, I think, the psychopolitical dimensions of voting. And then there's a second aspect specific to me why I am often a little bit ambivalent about whether one should go there, which is why I left even the reference to psychopolitics to the last paragraph of my critique of the January the 8th statement. And the reason for it um, is, coffee that I think to myself, so often when the ANC voter, and again, it is the imagined ANC voter, is put on trial by everyone who wants to understand why on earth are they still voting ANC, they voting ANC. We assume that ANC voters very often are obviously rational and voting against their own interest. And if only they can be made to think a bit more logically and rationally, they will see the error of their ways and obviously vote not for the ANC. In the worst case scenario, stay away from the um, polls and maybe if you're an opposition politician 
you will be hopeful that perhaps they will give you a chance because after all, quote, we can't possibly do worse than the ANC for you as a black person, as a poor person, and most certainly as a poor black person. And that's why I stayed away from the term Stockholm Syndrome. And many people who read the article and appreciated it almost thought that I am not aware of the concept of Stockholm Syndrome. I'm very aware of it. I deliberately didn't use that description precisely because I'm wary of assuming that there is perfect irrationality on the part of an ANC voter. So, of course, one doesn't have to conclude that when you do the psychological analysis that you're talking about, but it's part of what makes me uncomfortable as a preliminary point, that we've got to be very clear that we are not assuming that there is some psychopathy here on the part of ANC voters, and that the rest of us who either doubt the ANC, or who no longer vote ANC, or who vote for an opposition party, we somehow have got greater rationality in our approach to decision-making when it comes to who we vote for. So those are some of the considerations that make me a little bit queasy about speculative psychology when it comes to understanding the ANC loyal voter. That said, let's go there and I'll sort of end after this thought and hear what you have to say about my preliminary concerns around psychologizing the ANC voter. But if we had to go there, I would say, you know, it's 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 a tough one. I used to have this conversation with um, Karima Brown, and Karima used to say to me, we have different starting points from which we measure what life looks like now compared to 30 years ago. If you never had a clinic in your area and you've got one now, even with an ambulance service that is not working as efficiently as it should, you've got some notion of a slightly different life to the one you had in 1980. The same might be the case with a poorly constructed REP house. It may be poorly constructed, but it might be better than having no structure at all. But I don't think that logic works anymore. I think the empirical data that President Cyril Ramaphosa himself, as I pointed out in my critique of the January the 8th statement, listed in their January the, their own January the 8th statement, the empirical data about the state of the state tell us that life is so horrible for all South Africans, and obviously disproportionately so for black South Africans living under conditions of both relative and absolute poverty, that that argument from the early 2000s where one could say there's now a clinic and that is the measure of improvement for a poor voter, it no longer holds water because since then there's been a massive backsliding in the delivery of services. And even compared to the Zuma years, as scary as that thought might be, on some socioeconomic indices, we've done worse over the last five years and continue to do worse with everything from energy insecurity to organized criminality increasing, such as kidnappings, for example, and becoming an easy destination for the illicit flows of monies, etc., 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 etc. And so the idea that perhaps there is internal rationality with which to understand an ANC voter, that argument had a little bit of a pull 
maybe 10 years after 1994, but I don't think it does anymore. And so I guess I want to I conclude here for the moment so to give you a chance to come back in by summarizing the two broad themes that I've been trying to sort of articulate in response to your wonderful uh, voice note um, that you had left me to start off this dialectic between you and me. The first is, I'm, I'm wary for all the nerdish reasons that I've mentioned, wary of any genuine attempt at psychoanalyzing the ANC voter. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you've, you've heard me articulate those concerns in some detail. And then at the same time, secondly, notwithstanding all of my concerns, I, I share your articulation that there is a puzzle that is worth taking seriously here, the puzzle of understanding that psychology. I guess my question back to you is, what do you make of my thoughts overall? And how can one proceed to try and understand that puzzle if you take seriously my concerns about the very enterprise of, of speculative psychology when it comes to, to political analysis? In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. So Eusebius, thanks again for getting back to me and uh, kick-starting this conversation. I must say I love the two, your conclusion and the summary of these two points. This is exactly where I wanted us to go. As the first one is the idea that uh, the psychology of the African National Congress voter, you know, makes you uncomfortable and puts you in the situation where you're a bit wary about it, that you feel you know, we have to put the African National Congress voter on trial. Yes, of course we have to. You know, they've been putting the African National Congress itself on trial. You know, many of them have left. They've asked themselves, how in the world did we manage to get, you know, you know, led into this whole, you know, path for many years and every year we get some kind of cut and paste diagnostics that's as powerful as the one the year before. I mean, the idea now that we've moved from 17 million, you know, grant, uh, grantees for social grants to now I think it's 29 million. This is a huge jump. Where do we get all this money? Why can't we use that money to organize, you know, job creation and so forth. But let me get back to the idea of your, your ambivalence about the psychopolitics, you call it. It is really important to really look at it, you know. And the reason why I'm saying this, the evidence is so overwhelming that we cannot just look at, you know, the politicians alone. We need to look at the people who make those politicians, the people who give the license to govern to those politicians and make sure that they also, you know, must be responsible for their choices. Even if we criticize their choices, even if we psychologically analyze them and critique them. I know it's an area where people find it very difficult to go. They worry about uh, psychology most of the time because of the nature of the field. People are already, you know, strung up and feeling uncomfortable thinking that somebody's mental 
you know, uh, state must be analyzed and thinking that there's a psychopathy about it. Of course they must be analyzed. And if they are psychopathy, we need to look at them and figure out how can we help. And clearly, you know, if I may be a little bit bolder, we have now, um, it's not just happening in South Africa, but across the African continent, you know, a, a group largely of traumatized African leaders who govern us and who need help. Many of them have been traumatized for years, being exiled or during the struggle, during the, the war against apartheid or colonialism and so forth. And, you know, they've lived into fear, into trauma, into all sorts of, you know, debilitating situations with a great deal of courage that have led them to where they are and convinced people that because they're fought, they are the right to govern. And of course, the African national voters or voters in general are giving them that license for now, many, many years or many decades. However, the results, or if you want the assessments or the outcomes or the outputs of the government of this governing style has not yielded anything that's encouraging. And of course, the evidence is there um, in the speech of the president himself that reports. And I even fear that perhaps the, you know, the state of the nation address coming up soon will be a cut and paste of that report to just pull out a traumatizing diagnostic and nothing else to help people sort of recover from this diagnostics. And this is a big worry for me, and that's one of the reasons we need to analyze this, you know, psychology of the leadership that's traumatized, that seem to be, first of all, numb um, to the impact of their incapacity to deal with the overwhelming number of problems and challenges their countries face, but also the fact that um, they don't seem to probably even care, at least for what many of us are looking at right now. You know, um, they come in, they speak like the media, they analyze what's wrong in the country, the challenges, and then make promises that they will do this and then nothing happens. Now, they've created over the years and decades a legacy of trauma that are now leading most of you know the citizens into traumatic environments and without being a bit crude if you took for example the case of of course south africa and then the issue of the energy crisis in south africa with the electricity and load shedding you know with the great hope metaphorically if i want to use that that most people were in the dark before and they had a chance to come out in the lights to be free quote unquote and to feel like the ANC is taking them out or at least you know the leaders of most uh, struggle um, parties have taken them out of there and brought them to the light and now suddenly we seem to be going back to the dark with electricity, um, you know, provision that are dysfunctional, 
people are literally in the dark and and we know the kind of you know psychological state that it creates in most of us and most people who are in the dark literally you can't do anything there's a sense that you know you're very you know not that you have the power to do anything you can't go and break you know the leg of somebody to say get this thing done people are just sitting in the dark and they are now subject to a great deal of trauma that they can't really express in public because there's this fear of sharing the kind of trauma and illness and and toxic environment that you're in that encourages this kind of thing so people have accumulated over the years most of these and we need to be careful that this kind of accumulation doesn't burst out into uncontrollable um, disaster and chaos and by and large it seems that those who are at the end at the receiving end of those kind of dysfunctionalities now have now find a way to rationally um, justify their position <laughs> both by looking at the history where they were benchmarking thing things the way they thought things were worse and now they have it better as you were saying in your rebuttal to me but in fact it's a way of benchmarking themselves down and i would have hoped that most of them by now with the opening of south africa would have had enough information to be able to feed into their their own way of making decisions and learn to evolve and change positions when necessary but for the most part um they seem not to have done that and that's one of the reason the idea of that stockholm syndrome is important i know you're wary about it and it's, it makes you feel uncomfortable but it must be just discuss and addressed one way or another because that will help us to understand the psychologies that now normalizing right um the, not just the pains that we're all feeling but that things are okay we can be in the dark right and it reminds me about the a book i'm just reviewing for publication by gabor mate and his son uh, titled The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And we must debunk this idea of that normal, uh, especially for us, that we can't normalize, you know, the miseries that are coming out of, um, you know, the, the load shedding situation, or unemployment, or poverty. I mean, how long can we normalize that? and make it something that, oh, no, that's okay. Um, the things will change and things don't change. So the, that's where the conversation about the psychology, it's not a psychopathy yet to a certain degree, but it must be really um, addressed. And, and the government, or at least the African National Congress, shouldn't be the only one on trial. And I think the, the African National um, Congress has been on trial for probably, what, uh, two decades now. We, we just, people are complaining and so forth. Now we need to turn that light onto those who are giving license to the African National Congress to treat them like that, not only them, but also the country. And I can tell you, it's uncomfortable. It must be 
because it's difficult to talk about things that don't work well. And so the leadership psychology must be interrogated to see how um, we can figure out not only what's happening, but can we get out of this situation? Because we must not assume, because we've assumed before, now we have enough evidence to say that things are not working, the African National Congress is not self-correcting. There's always patching here and there, but it's not changing. So I'm not providing a solution per se, but I want in that journey to have a conversation on what to respons what kind of responsibilities are lying at the feet of the African National Congress voter or anybody else that's going to be voting for the African National Congress, given the stark and stinging diagnostics that the June 8th report has put out. What do we do? You know, so that's the first one. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Let me intervene there before I respond and listen to, before I respond to the second part of your engagement with, with what I have said. So just to summarize, we both agree that we should be wary in general that speculative psychologizing of voters is a dangerous enterprise under any circumstances. But I'm persuaded by your absolutely brilliant, careful, nuanced 10 minutes explanation of why we should go there. And if you go there carefully and thoughtfully, then you don't have to worry about whether you are engaging in something that sees the poor black person, let's be honest, as irrational, but that you are asking a serious question. And in fact, I would add this by way of supporting your invitation that we take up the challenge of making sense of the ANC voter, that in fact, you take the ANC voter so seriously that you've given it the kind of consideration that that every listener of the podcast has just listened to in, in that second response of yours to, to, to my initial article about the January the 8th statement being an argument by the ANC that it is useless. So I want to thank you for everything that you've laid out. But before I listen to and then respond to the rest of your analysis, I think just so that everyone can maintain the thread of our conversation, I want to respond to everything you've said right now, thus far. And firstly, I'm excited now because with my qualification out of the way that I am not comfortable with cheap psychologizing of voters. I know that reasonable listeners to this dialogue between you and me will know that what I'm about to do is not a contradiction of that, but an attempt to do exactly what you're inviting me to do, which is to take up that question, but in a way that does not think of the ANC voter as an irrational child, okay? Um, but that we're seriously trying to make sense here of, of a couple of concepts that I'm about to introduce by way of uh, responding to your challenge and then supplicating your own attempt to respond to that challenge. You know, as I was listening to you, I was reminded of a postgraduate political theory course I did at Rhodes University, and I recently bumped into uh, Dr. Tony Fluxman, who was an excellent teacher and one of my favorites at Rhodes University. And there were two courses I did with him, one of them officially, the other one 
just because you were so brilliant, I attended all of the seminars anyway, did the readings. And the one course that he taught for many, many years, in fact, I think he taught it until retirement. Um, and I even managed to find a 2015 correspondence between me and him when I'd reached out to him and I'd said, please, can you send me the reading list again of that brilliant course you taught when I was your student many years prior? And he did so with a lament that some of the readings that he assigned to us from Hegel um, he's no longer able to assign, and it's a pity. And he wistfully said in the email, I hope you won't mind me saying so, um, because the times have changed. And I think in part what he meant by that is that, unfortunately, a lot of students just don't have the attention span to read the classics, as it were. Um, but when I did the course with him, the central question that he asked, and the course was termed domination, is why do the few accept the rule of the many? And if you cash out that question or you articulate that question with a little bit more detail to set up the puzzle, you quickly come to the conversation that you have set up with me. Why is it that people in power as a group of elites that hold on to power are able to reproduce that power even when a numerical majority of people in different class categories may be undermined, but they don't revolt. And the puzzle of domination is really what I think you and I are grappling with here. And now I'm more comfortable to address that question because the puzzle of domination is not a South African puzzle. It's a puzzle in many societies and not just contemporary societies. But over hundreds of years where you've had rule by the few over the many that has been sustained and where the few have reproduced their power, sometimes referred to as hegemonic power, and the many have not always been good at revolting, which is why revolutions are actually not very common which is why when they do happen, they are momentous and we are able to teach them in history as rare events that you get examined by because they don't happen every other day. And the puzzle of domination, to really understand why it's a puzzle, as one thinker puts it, is the following. Don't ask, they say, why a hungry person decided to steal or why one person that was oppressed decided to fight back including killing rather ask yourself why everyone else who's hungry have not yet stolen anything that's the puzzle ask why other people who've been subjugated have not yet responded violently that is the puzzle and I, and I really think that if you're listening to this conversation between um, myself and Coffee, you need to perhaps rewind to, to, to re-listen to that. Well, let me restate it. We often think that we need to pay attention, in the South African case, to those who looted. But in a sense, a question worth asking, as scary as it is, especially if you moralized against the behavior in response to the behavior of the looters 
an interesting and important different question that I don't think we actually asked, uh, quite frankly, coffee is why there are more people who live under conditions of extremity revolt in 2021. That is the question of dom domination. And in a sense, now to bring it back to your question about putting the ANC voter on trial, the question is when it is patently by this lights of ANC reasoning itself, not in the interest of the majority to continue voting ANC, how do we explain, nevertheless, the ANC getting a majority share of the vote? And I think there's, that's a profound, profound question to ask from a social science point of view, and there are no easy answers. To refer back to that course, and I went over some of the readings again, and you took me down a journey intellectually that was really interesting to go back to. Um, there are many theories over the years, including from the faves of many listeners of this podcast, whether it's Karl Marx, whether it is the famous book on voluntary servitude, whether it is more modern writers trying to come up with more functional um, explanations of people living in false consciousness. There's a whole bunch of rich, detailed, beautiful literature in political theory spanning hundreds of years, quite frankly, that have tried to make sense of this question of why it is that a majority of people often allow an elite to prey on them and an elite to reproduce its power. And that's what the ANC is doing. The ANC is reproducing its power election after election and a majority let the ANC reproduce its power without revolt. And the question is, what drives that? And there are no easy answers, which is precisely why so many brilliant thinkers have been in conversation with each other for decades and for hundreds of years trying to address this question in political science. So I, I hope that that description of why your challenge to me two or three days later strikes me as actually deeply interesting, not unique to South Africa, and certainly has led me to, to really think again about a very important graduate question that that I had engaged and haven't thought about in years. I guess the question now then is, what do I make of the question of domination and the puzzle of domination in relation to the, the ANC voter? And I think here, I'm gonna be brief and provocative. Even though I don't wanna say that the ANC voters got Stockholm Syndrome, there's something about Stockholm Syndrome that is just, tied to a very specific event in Sweden that happened historically. And I don't know whether there is complicated literature around what happened there with the bank robbers and their hostages, you know, in the same way in which when we talk about Karl Marx's work, Fanon's work, when we talk about people like Michael Rosen, or whether we talk about Hegel 
and the master-slave dialectic. I mean, there's some really brilliant classic thinkers and literature and texts that, that have complicated this question. And the framework of Stockholm Syndrome, I just don't like, because I don't like the idea of thinking of the ANC voter in simplistic terms. Voters are complex. But if we, if we draw from the more complicated literature, one possibility is that as a class, many downtrodden South Africans living under conditions of relative and absolute poverty, structural injustices, might be, and trigger warning, here comes the provocative part, might be somewhere along a spectrum of false consciousness. Now, what do I mean by false consciousness? is that at group level, ANC voters may have been hoodwinked successfully by the ANC government into not revolting and reasoning inaccurately about their self-interest. I think that's, that's entirely, entirely possible, which is why you would find many working-class South Africans criticizing the looters. Now, I'm not saying that looting is legally acceptable or morally acceptable, but what I am saying is that in, in the face of massive oppression from Marikana to the assassination of activists around Durban, like leaders of Abashladi, quite apart from the violence of poverty, the cost of living, being a form of violence materially, that it is not obvious that it is irrational to respond violently to violence if you are a citizen. I'm not advocating for violence, I'm just saying that one can account for why the July 2021 uprisings happened. And moralizing that it was bad does not help us to understand why it happened. The real question is why was why didn't it happen on a bigger scale and why wasn't it sustained and what are the prospects of that that happening? And I think one reason why it didn't happen and why it wasn't sustained and why it petered out after a while is precisely because of false consciousness rather than because we are hardwired um, to be law-abiding. But there's something about that relationship that I alluded to in my main response to the ANC's January the 8th statement, where I said that the ANC has got a psychopolitical grip over the voter. And perhaps in a sense, that's what I'm coming back to in answering your question about, let's put the ANC vote on trial, and if we do so, how do we make sense of the ANC voter psychology? Well, the way to make sense of it is that the ANC voter has internalized the importance I think, and I know it's speculative, but hear me out and sincerely think through the coherence of this viewpoint, they, they've internalized this idea that it's in our collective interest as a society to live in a relatively stable society and that things would be worse if it wasn't relatively stable. And the way to undermine that relative stability, which is not desirable, is to revolt. And the, the idea of the ANC not being in government, when all the alternatives, which I'll come back to later, 
are so uncertain might strike one as a more worrying, uncertain scenario compared to the status quo. It's a short jump from there to reproducing the ANC power and legitimating the ANC power, even though the way in which that power is used undermines the material interest of so many working class voters. Now, that's a lot to take in, but, you know, welcome to In the Ring with Eusebius McKaiser. Sometimes it's shits and giggles, and sometimes we've got to deal with complexity. And I'm afraid this question about the relationship between the voter and the governing party is not an easy question. And I hope that this dialogue is one that you are going to enjoy. Now, I was interrupting you, Coffee. Um, don't respond to this message. Continue with the second part of your response to me. Um, I'll respond to that, and, and, and then you can have the last say. So, in essence, I accept the challenge. I think it's important. You go right. I, I concede that we put the ANC vote on trial. And I think that the direction in which we then should go, as it were, to look for an answer to that question, is theories of domination in political theory to help us understand the ability of the ANC to reproduce its own hegemony, and in turn, the weird puzzle that is a classic puzzle in political theory of how the majority can consent to their own subjugation. It is not unique to South Africa, and it's not unique to modernity. And it is a puzzle for which there are many competing explanations. I have drawn from one, and it's not obvious that it's the correct one. Some might say it's too quick and dirty, but one possible explanation for why we tend to do that in South Africa and elsewhere is how effective ruling parties often are at getting the majority into a state of false consciousness such that in terms of our class interests we end up helping the one who oppresses us to reproduce their power even through democratic means in the ring with Eusebius Macaiser so on your second point about the puzzle, I really like this point because it is indeed a puzzle because we can diagnose we can diagnose this as long as we want, as deep as we want. The point there is now to say after we understand it, when we unravel this puzzle, so what? What do we do with it? You know, where do we take it from here? Because there must be a sense already across the country. I mean, I've listened to many people, uh, somebody like uh, Songizo Zibi, uh, formerly at uh, editor at the Business Day, who has now created a movement or an NGO to address the challenges and ills of the country. Um, there are other people that I've also listened to at civil society groups. But there's a sense of, of frozen, you know, frozen action. People quite don't know what to do <laughs> and how to take it. But there, there's a, a, a seemingly agreeable 
uh, conventional wisdom that says things are not going well, we must do something about it. And this is where I agree with you on the nature of the puzzle that governs the behavior of the African National Congress voter. And it's not enough to explain it like the government is doing now, as if, you know, if the government were an NGO sitting on the side, they're in charge. After having done that diagnostic, what should they do? You know, what are the, the low-hanging fruit that they can pick to make this thing happen? And frankly, this country is not short of extraordinary short, uh, smart and intelligent people that can get the country back to work, deal with all these, um, you know, challenges that the country's facing, and then give hope back again, because we have to get to that point. Or if we don't, the country will move to a complete abyss and it will be difficult to come back from there. So I want to go back again to the point of the uh, contextual element you make, the analogy with um, Karima Brown. It is true. Um, perhaps many of us are not standing in the place where they are. Uh, it reminds me uh, when Karima Brown says, um, you know, that the analogy, that, that, that contextual logic that informs the NC voters that some of them who've never seen anything else now have a toilet, some kind of small house somewhere there. And that's how they feel. It's right, that's how they should be feeling. But we must go beyond this because many who have a much higher level of thinking about uh, seeing things wherever they are, uh, comparing them with the nature of the challenges that we have, the opportunity, the strength. And then, you know, the leadership that's necessary to move people from benchmarking below or benchmarking down on very small things. Uh, we know the Maslow hierarchy of needs are important, food, water, shelter, and so forth, the ability to move around. But these are low levels, you know, of expectation that we should have already passed. And, and I think uh, I'm not attempting to be uh, self-righteous, but we'll have to agree. There's a different levels of expectation that this leadership must meet. And for me, it's very important. So while I would agree with Karima Brown's uh, analogy of the nature, the contextual logic of that governed uh, most of the time some of the African National Congress voters. It reminds me of the um, a story that um, um, the 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 key one of the senior advisors to François Mitterrand, former president of France, um, uh, wrote about in his book about the president, and. Um, you know, the advisor used to come up with all sorts of things, talking and making all kinds of recommendations. And one day, President Francois Mitterrand called him in his office and he said, come on this side here and stand here and look outside the window. What do you see? And uh, the senior advisor said, my goodness, this is a totally different place. I can see things differently. And he said to him, this is exactly the point I wanted to make, that 
where you stand and where you sit should inform largely your view of the world, but also uh, making sure that that view is shared with the rest of the people you work with. And on that note, I want to say thanks again for um, summarizing very well. I love those two two elements of your conclusion. I look forward to the next rebuttal. Thank you. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Okay, so here's my final thoughts, and then you can close us out with your last comments. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to try and not go on too long. I spend a lot of our engagement with my last response to you really reflecting philosophically on what I call the problem of domination. I don't know how clear I was, but there's great material there. I hope for returning to that conversation in many iterations over the next year as we get into an election cycle and also just as we try and make sense of ourselves as a, as a society where we have the strange conundrum of an ANC government going to Bloemfontein and saying, we have fucked up royally in this country, and yet it remains in power. In fact, it's not even ashamed to list the many ways in which it has messed up. And that for me is a question of how is it that we are consenting to be dominated? So in essence, that was that's what I was trying to say in my last response. Um, but of course, what you've just articulated is from the practical point of view, your response to Karima's uh, contextual reasoning I think is helpful and then the story that you ended with. I want to respond finally by saying the following. How do we break all of this? How do we deal with domination? And again, thinkers have puzzled with this question practically um, from an activism point of view um, as much as they have tried to understand this at the reason of uh, psychopolitics. And I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. I really don't know. What I would say are a couple of things that unfortunately are trite. The first is that it's easier to imagine a country in which South Africa, a country in which the ANC is not in charge of South Africa, if the alternatives were feasible and desirable. And and I know that's something that opposition parties by now must be getting so annoyed with the commentariat, myself included, glibly saying that. But, but the reality is that the opposition parties, whether it's EFF, DA, whether it's the smaller ones, Good, Action SA, they, UDM, IFP, you know, they make inroads here and there. Um, Freedom Front Plus, every now and then they will grab a little bit of space away from the ANC in electoral geography terms. But none of them have really been serious contenders on this question of the psychology of the voter to capture the hearts and minds of a massive chunk of the voters. And they all rely on deep discontent with the ANC as, as a basis for the voter falling in love with them. And, and I think that's just not good enough. I, I really think that our opposition parties should take on a bigger burden in a psycho-political sense wrestling with the following question, how can we get the ANC voter to begin to think about us as attractive? Now, when I wrote my second book, Could I Vote DA? I had several launches of the book. I had one launch um, at what's that beautiful old hotel in Joburg downtown. It will come back to me. 
um, with Anthony Oldbecker as my interlocutor. And I mean, Anthony Oldbecker is just not just a wonderful interlocutor to listen to, but also just super sharp, uh, excellent writer and thinker himself and many books and articles and contributions that I've loved, one of them being a country at war with itself. And one of the questions he put to me that, that night was, Eusebius, you know, isn't it important to have a political party that can that can simply do the job practically? Why do you put the DA on trial by wanting it to be a party that you love? And and I will misdescribe his wording here. He put it more eloquently. I'm a little bit tired at the moment, but I, I hope I recall the essence of it accurately. And basically he said to me, you know, there's something, something almost childish, something pathetic, not, not morally pathetic, but something pathetic in a sort of psychological sense about wanting to be in love with a party. Have a different expectation. What can the party do for you functionally? And I really, I've, I've sat with that question for many, many years. I mean, that DA book came out, what, in about 2015 or thereabouts? But I actually think, Anthony, if you still follow my work, listen to this podcast, I think the answer I gave you that night still applies almost 10 years later, eight years later, which is to say, precisely because human beings are psychological creatures and not automatons, we don't relate to political parties in functional ways only. I don't only want someone who can remove the refuse keep the lights on, that would be great. And maybe because the ANC is doing such a bad job, we will become purely functional in the next election, perhaps for the first time. But for most of our, even though it's a small electoral history, for most of our history, um, we've wanted to be able to relate to a political party. The ANC understands that very well, very well, Coffee, which is why they are so populous now by riding the wave of Afrophobia, suddenly pretending to care about anti-black racism in schools or swimming pools, even though they've always been in power and could have done more to make sure that racism is dealt a fatal blow. And they haven't. Similarly, why have they not had better border controls, better migration system, for example, etc., etc., etc.? Um, but the point that I'm making is that the ANC kind of knows the heart of the voter very well and the psychology of the voter very well. And I think one of the ways in which to get the voter, the ANC voter we're putting in trial, to think differently would be to have opposition parties that learn to engage them and relate to them, not just in functional terms, but also in psychological terms, and taking the psychological fight to the ANC. And we don't see that, I'm afraid. We, we really don't. The only other practical thing I can add um, to move away from philosophical analysis is that although we shouldn't be biased as, as the media, um, there's a, the, you know, we, we do have duties that I don't think we always take seriously because of the myth of objectivity. We do have a duty to make sure we contextualize facts, that we fact check a speech by an ANC president. If they have forgotten what resolutions they came up with at Mangaung 10 years ago, when they promised, for example, that ANC cadres would be getting political education, that they would be better qualified before they get seconded to the state, you've got to make sure that is in your report rather than 
reporting on Mangahung in 2022-2023 as if there's no ANC elective conference history against which to measure its new resolutions, new pronouncements, and I put new in scare quotes because they aren't actually new. In other words, it doesn't help when the media and commentators do not role model historicism, contextualization, and thinking critically. If we can do that, we might slowly begin to get more voters to think critically about how they relate to any political party. And I think that's missing in the public space and in public discourse. The quality of our education exacerbates that and the ANC benefits from those structural realities. But those of us who are able to role model, thinking differently, imagining life without the ANC, we need to speak up more, not as an anti-ANC project, but as a project of deep commitment to civic education. I'll leave it there. Final word is over to you. In the ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius, thanks again for getting back to me. And this is my uh, closing statement. I will say that um, I've enjoyed um, your second rebuttal, very rich, not just philosophical, but also um, the moral sentiment that under, uh, underline most of your arguments. And very, very interesting to listen to what you're saying. And I agree with you. This conversation is long overdue about, you know, it's not just putting the Af uh, the African, uh, the NC voters on trial, but to examine a bit, little bit deeper the, you know, conditions, the psychological makeups that, you know, govern this, uh, what you call nicely the psychopolitical uh, grip of the ANC voter. So in closing, I believe that the challenge we have, especially of the moral conundrum, you know, for us going forward, um, should compel us to ask the following questions. There are three of them. There may be many, but I've chosen to stick with the following three. The first one is what really grant us, many of us who are now, you know, putting the African National Congress voters on trial, what grant us the moral privilege to do so, to put them on trial? The second question is why should those who do not share the position of the psychopolitical grip of the African National Congress voter care at all. And the third one and the last one is, what should the many who are not under that spell or that grip do to minimize the negative consequences of it? I think these are the three questions I've been asking myself across our conversation to sort of close it in a way that we may not have all the answers, of course, because this conversation must continue one way or another. And I hope you'll 
listeners and those who follow your work will start reflecting on it because the quality of most conversations usually help us to find some kind of um, at least relief from our own psychological <laughs> challenges, if I may say so. And there are many of them. And get out of the normalized, you know, traumatic pains and other, you know, issues that we are facing instead of uh, finding ways to get out of them. As I said again, I'm putting these three rhetorical questions out. Um, the first one, what grants us this moral privilege? is that indeed we are human beings and live in a society where the consequences of what I would call hubristic leadership can have detrimental consequences on our lives, not just in the present, but also in the future with our families. So we have to exercise that kind of privilege one way or another, especially in the democratic environment. We're not in a tyranny or completely authoritarian uh, space in South Africa, which is a huge privilege that we must exercise. And I think that gives us a chance to do so quietly without violence and with a great deal of responsibility as well. That would be my sort of sketchy answer to the first question. And the second question is, why should those who do not share the positions of the cycle, you know, political grip of the NC voter care at all. I think you can find the answer also into the answer I gave to the sec the first question. We do care. <laughs> I think that's the point. A society that cares and sees things going, you know, differently with the evidence that things are not working, things are dysfunctional. Um, the myth of normalcy shouldn't be entertained because um, its return on the investment is not positive enough to change and transform the lives of people for the better, and that one we know. So we must care. Um, and one thing that's really um, extraordinary uh, in South Africa is there have been studies that show that South Africans, in fact, and this is not just uh, in the context of uh, the region only, but also the world, South Africans rank among some of the most caring people on the planet in terms of gift, philanthropy, support. South Africans are always quick to help. And there's so many evidence for it, uh, just that perhaps the caring and the evidence is not huge enough to really deal with the enormity of the challenges the country faces in terms of poverty, inequality, um, you know, unemployment, corruption, and all other, you know, horsemen challenges we're facing. So that will be my answer to question two. Question three is, you know, why should the many who are not under that, you know, domination, what you call the, um, the puzzle of the domination, um, you know, do something about it to minimize the consequences of this uh, grip. Indeed, um, they have to do it because if they don't, they will submit to consequences that will not help their lives for the better. And I think these are very simple, basic Maslow hierarchy of needs that 
<laughs> need to be talked about. And I think sometimes um, we tend to probably philosophize a lot in policy, uh, environment, think tanks, and so forth. But these are the basic things to pay attention to. If people are suffering and, you know, what's causing the suffering is taking time to understand that they are causing suffering, that means there's something wrong. <laughs> something must be done. We can psychologize it any way we want, but something must be done to relieve people from the pain and the consequences of, you know, misplaced policies, um, tardy decision makings of actions and so forth. And that will be my answer to question three. But to close it again, finally, I think the question and the puzzle of the, um, you know, the great domination of the African National Congress on the voters uh, must be addressed one way or another. And we know that uh, the evidence is shown based on your commentaries on the June 8th report, uh, uh, National Executive Committee reports, that things are not going well in the country. So if the African National Congress still wields that power, they must do something about what's not going well. And they can't just cut and paste every year. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Okay, we're going to leave it there. There's a lot that you needed to chew on there. Please, firstly, make sure you subscribe before you leave the podcast platform. That way we make sure that you never miss an episode and you don't have to worry about me having to prompt you on Twitter or Facebook or WhatsApp before you get a link. Just become a subscriber. I'd really appreciate it. Secondly, it helps the podcast if you leave a review and a comment about what you make of the podcast. You can be as honest as you want, but please do leave a review and a rating for us. I really appreciate that. And then kindly do share it on your own social media platforms as well. You can DM me wherever you find me and suggest individuals you'd like me to host as guests and also topics you want me to tackle. And thanks again to Coffee for giving permission uh, to have our private conversation become public. And I hope that you had found it as interesting as I did, thinking about it in an innovative way, um, but also um, allowing myself to, to take a couple of days and think deeply about the challenge of dom domination and this philosophical conundrum. How is it that the many can sometimes consent to the few reproducing its power over the rest of us, even when it's not in our interest? I think that's a deep and urgent question to think through, and I hope you'll enjoy taking it to the water cooler at the office, a dinner party, or perhaps with you to bed as you are trying to fall asleep and get distracted by this deep question of the voter psychology and the links between psychology and politics in the country. Cheers. 